is uh, from Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 20. And um, though it says ESV, it's actually from the New International Version. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat from the tree that is in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some of them and ate it. She also gave some to her husband and who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? Where are you? He answered, I, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid uh, because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some of the fruit of the tree and I, I ate it. <laughs> then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? The woman said, well, the serpent deceived me and I ate. <laughs> so the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, Cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust in all, all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. To the woman, he said, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he'll rule over you. To Adam, he said, because you listened to your wife and ate fr fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat fruit, food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you. And you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground. Since from it you were taken. For dust you are. And to dust you will return. So Adam named his wife Eve because she would become the mother of all the living. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Okay, I'm going to get settled first. Is it okay if I move this sound, people? Okay. I didn't know what was 
allowed here, so wanted to get that out of the way. Um, I'm Heath, uh, RUF at UNC Charlotte. First, I want to say a big shout out to Phil Prince. I think he is the first person in all the churches I've ever been to as RUF campus minister to pronounce my last name correctly. Um, like legitimately, I've been to tons of churches and he's the only one that's ever gotten it right. So thank you for that. Um, my lovely wife Jane is right down here and as he was talking about original sin and children, if you hear screaming coming through that wall at any point during this service, that would be our three-year-old. Um, it's one of those mornings. Uh, if you have children, you know what that's like. Um, thanks for having me. I think it's been two years since I've been here. Uh, I think the last week of Howard's sabbatical two years ago was the last time I was here. So that either says a lot more about me than I wish it did, or tells you a lot about Howard and Charles really didn't want to preach today. Um, either way, thank you for having us back. Glad to be here. Uh, thank you for your church. Y'all support RUF at UNC Charlotte, and we couldn't be on campus without y'all, so thank you for that. My Bible is not staying open, so we're just going to try to make that happen. Um, so what we're going to do this morning, we're going to be in Genesis 3, and if you see the title up there, you're probably thinking, wow, that's kind of a weird one sermon to bring. Um, we're going to do this for a couple reasons. One, Charles emailed me last weekend to preach today, so I didn't have a lot of lead time. Um, and with RUF, the beginning of the school year is really busy, and we just finished our second week. So I didn't have a lot of time to really uh, do much. So for, I think, my two RUF students that are here, this is going to sound almost exactly like what they heard on Thursday night. Um, but what we're doing in RUF this semester is we're looking at relationships because relationships, especially in college, are the air we breathe, the water we swim in. And I think it's true for all of us, uh, friendships, spouses, boyfriends, girlfriends, parents, children, we all live in relationships. And so I think this can actually be really helpful for us this morning at what as well. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to look at the mess of relationships. Last week in RUF, just to give you context, it would have been we were made for relationships, and this week is the mess of relationships. You're going to get a little taste of what RUF is like at UNC Charlotte, whether you want it or not. Let me pray for us, and then we'll dive in. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you saw fit to have people write it down so that thousands of years later we could hear from it, look at it, study it, hear you speaking to us. We thank you for that. Lord, we pray for our time this morning that it would be glorifying to you in everything that we do. We thank you that we can praise you with our voices. We pray now that... Um, as we turn to your word, your Holy Spirit would be with us, that it would enter into us this morning, that you would open ears and minds and hearts to what you have to say for us. Pray for me as I speak that um, your word would come through and not my opinion, 
that if I say anything contrary to your word or your will, you would strike it from our minds. We pray for this time. We pray that you would be glorified in it. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Okay, when I was in seventh grade, this is going back a long time for me, I went to a football game one Friday night, and I asked a girl named Emily to, quote, go out with me. I don't know what that meant, because we never went anywhere in middle school, but that's what you did. And she said yes, but first there was a catch. She had to break up with her current boyfriend. In my defense, for those of you that are thinking it, I did not know she had a boyfriend at that time. Um, But she said yes, and I was ecstatic at that point. I was like, I had a girlfriend. I think that was a first. And at some point during the night, I don't... I don't know why this happened. Like I was going down the stadium stairs, and I think she was coming up. And as we passed, she like kind of swatted me. Like y'all know what I'm talking about. That was really weird for me, but also awesome for a seventh grade boy. And like that's what happened. That was my night. Um, but then the next time I saw Emily, she informed me that in fact she was not going to break up with her current boyfriend. And I did not have a girlfriend. So one night I go from seventh grade anxiety, nervous, fear, like sweaty palms, can't talk to a girl, to having a girlfriend, to the crushing disappointment of not having a girlfriend, all in the span of about what a high school football game, we'll say two hours. And... I tell you that because, one, it's funny, but two, I think it's a perfect illustration of how relationships make us feel. Relationships, they're just this whirlpool of confusion and stress and anxiety and fear and unmet expectations. If we're honest with ourselves, relationships are just really hard and really messy. But why? And this morning, that's what I want us to look at. I want us to look at the why of the messiness of relationships. And our text takes us straight to the heart of the matter. And it gives us the reason. There's this disease under our relational messiness. Our text gives us the symptoms of our relational messiness. And then lastly, our text gives us the cure for our relational messiness. So first, I want to look at the disease under the relational messiness. First, we have to understand that prior to this point, God is the complete center of everything that's going on in the Garden of Eden. God is king. Adam and Eve are loyal subjects. God says and they obeyed. And then Satan in the form of the serpent shows up and he says, he kind of whispers to Eve, God's lying. You're not really going to die. God's holding out on you. God knows you'll be like him. Does God really even love you? So now Eve has two choices. Who is she going to listen to? We've all seen the cartoons with the angel and the devil, the little uh, demon on one shoulder. Imagine being Eve. You have God himself, the creator of the universe, and Satan. And she's got a choice. But here what we need to see is that a cosmic shift occurs. She says, instead of God being the sinner, I will decide. I have the right to decide. 
instead of leaving God as the center of the universe, as the king who is to be obeyed, Eve puts herself there. She puts herself in the center, makes herself God. She says, I will decide what is right. And from that point on, she is the reference point for all of her decisions. It's called being self-centered. This was relational rebellion against the king of the universe. And it changed everything. Because we all have these common parents, Adam and Eve, all of us are forever tainted with this disease of self-centeredness. It's saying, I am the center of the universe, and everyone else should do exactly what I want them to do. I'm the king. Just do what I want. Even God, do what I want you to do. One Christian writer said it this way, it is this act of putting ourselves at the center of the universe where God belongs, that is unqualified sin. This is, in fact, the very definition of sin. And from this point on, self-centeredness becomes the nemesis of all relationships, parent and child, marriage relationships, even friendships. Larry Crabb, a Christian counselor, says self-centeredness is the killer In every bad relationship, it is the deadliest culprit. Poor communication, temper, unhealthy responses to dysfunctional families, codependent relationships, everything unless medically caused flows out of the cesspool of self-centeredness. What the fall has done has made it so that in every one of us, there's this disease of self-centeredness, so we live only in reference to, to ourselves, what we want, what we like. Let's take a look at what this looks like. Why do you decide to go to Christ Central Church versus another church? Because you like the music, because you like Howard or Charles or one of the interns or whatever it is. It's what we like. It's what we want. Why do we go to college at all? So we can get a degree. Maybe we can meet a spouse. Maybe we can get a good job and we can make lots of money. Why do we break up with each other? Um, Just think about a, a moment, the bad breakup lines. It's not you, it's me. I just need to concentrate on myself right now. And no, I'm not, I'm not necessarily saying that all of those are bad things. I just want us to see that the way we operate in the world is first and foremost thinking about ourselves. We are the reference point for how we think about the world. We are the fundamental orientation of our hearts, our brain, and our lives. This is the disease that is under all of the relational mess that goes on around us. But this disease also has some symptoms that we see in our text as well. Once Eve has decided she is the center, rebellion enters the picture. In order for us to be king, we have to rebel. We have to assert our own authority. So God says, do this. We go and do that because we are in charge And from this point on, we actually like to do wrong. We don't like to admit that very much, but we like to do wrong because 
if we're honest with ourselves, to an extent, it's fun to do stuff that's wrong. When I was in middle school, I think it was middle school, my parents gave me this fairly nice camera, and I like to fashion myself as like a photographer. And so these woods behind our house ran into this old World War II military installation. And um, after you got past the barbed wire fence, then there was the uh, chain link razor wire will shoot you if you come through it fence. And one day I was, I was walking back there and I was inside the barbed wire right next to the chain link and I came across a sign and it said something along the lines of, this is a government installation, it's illegal to take pictures and all of this stuff. So I had a camera and I took a picture of the sign that said it was illegal to take pictures because it was fun and I wasn't supposed to do it. If you've heard the name St. Augustine, this guy that lived in the three and four hundreds, St. Augustine, he talked about when he was a kid, he stole a bunch of fruit from his neighbor, not because he wanted to eat the fruit, because it was fun to steal stuff. We love to rebel. We like to do wrong. What this looks like now, internet pornography is absolutely pandemic in our culture. And we excuse it. We come up with reasons it's okay. Maybe my spouse doesn't have the libido that I do. Maybe we're teenagers and we don't have a legitimate outlet for our sexuality yet. So we excuse this. But what I want us to see we like to do wrong. One of the reasons we love pornography is because we know that it's wrong. So we rebel against God. It's the first symptom I want us to see. The second one is shame. You can follow along in your bulletin. Uh, verse 10, Adam says, I was naked and afraid. Shame enters the picture for the first time. And the pastors here could probably spend weeks talking about shame. I don't have that much time. But shame is just that feeling that it's not something I did is wrong. It's that I am wrong. Something deep down in me is just tainted. It's unlovely. It's ugly. It's wrong. And that leads us to fear God. It leads us to fear people. And it leads us to hide. Verses 5 to 7, they hide from God. The relationship that is to define our being on earth, us to God, and we run from it and we hide. We think we're too messed up, we're too sinful. God can't even stand to be around us. So we hide from God between, behind our jobs or our families or looking a certain way. But we've got to see that because of shame, we hide from each other too. In verse 7, Adam and Eve, they sew together the fig leaves and they make clothes for themselves and they hide from each other. Do we ever let people see the real us? And if you knew me really well, you would know that I hide behind laughter and telling stories and sarcasm 
so that you won't see how deeply afraid I am that you might not like me. Or how deeply afraid I am that what if RUF fails? Am I, then I'm a failure. And so I hide behind all of this stuff. We hide. Every one of us somehow develops a way to hide from other people. I mean, do we have really good friends that know us? I mean, yesterday was the start, the real start of college football season. Um, is our closest relationship sitting in front of a TV with another guy, yelling at the TV, then getting up and thinking we really connected on a deep emotional level? <laughs> Somebody's laughing back there. I mean, we can hide in schoolwork, we can hide in jobs, we can hide in just busyness, we can hide behind our children and parenthood. And there are unlimited ways we can do this. So we hide from each other. The next symptom I want us to see is that we're insecure. Who are we without reference to God? I mean, we've run away from Him, we've hidden from Him, so who are we now? So we try to find our security in things, in money, or possessions, people, relationships. We're trying to find any way that can make us whole, that can keep us safe. Also in seventh grade, this is my seventh grade illustration sermon. After Emily, I went out with a girl named Brooke. Went out with, never on a date, um, and my high school, or middle and high school, it was an all-guys school, and we had this directory for us that had pictures in it and phone numbers and all the contact information. Somehow Brooke got a hold of this and blew up like a teeny little picture, and blew it up like face size and put it in her locker. And that freaked me out. And so I thought I was being the good guy, and I broke up with her at the next football game in person, at which point she begged me to stay with her, that she would do anything to keep me as her boyfriend. When I said no, then she proceeded to stalk me the rest of the night. So wherever I was, she was like six feet behind me just watching. It was weird, but we are insecure. Who are we without reference to God anymore? And then lastly, the last symptom I want us to see is blame. We blame each other. Verse 12, God comes to the man and God says, Adam, what happened? The first words out of his mouth are the woman. And he even blames God in blaming the woman. He says, the woman you gave me. And so God turns to Eve and says, Eve, what happened? And Eve's like, the snake. They just keep passing the blame on down the line. So let me ask us a question this morning. Is it ever our fault? Did we lose the job because our boss didn't like us? Or because we weren't very good at our job? Did we get a C on our paper because we stood up for our faith or because we didn't write a very good paper? 
Did the relationship fail because the other person didn't get us or they changed or because of self-centered and unrealistic expectations on our part? After the fall, we have to understand our default reaction to anything is to blame someone else when things don't go the way we want them to. Since we believe and act like we're God, it can't be our fault. So those are the the symptoms of this disease of self-centeredness. And to sum these first two points up, another campus minister who actually I think was an intern here years ago, he said, what our self-centeredness has done is turned everyone into either a vehicle or an obstacle for our self-centeredness. They either give us what we want, what our self-centeredness wants, pleasure, security, the feeling of being wanted or loved or feeling beautiful. I mean, imagine they spend all their time with us They text us back immediately after we text them. How do you feel about that person? You love them. You feel great. The relationship's awesome. They're a vehicle for our self-centeredness. Or they're an obstacle to our self-centeredness. They keep us from what our self-centeredness wants. The boyfriend goes on a guy's weekend and bros out and doesn't tell the girlfriend. The husband watches football all day, completely ignoring his wife and children. Or our wife doesn't let us have the time to go do the hobby we want to do without her and the kids. They're obstacles to our self-centeredness. And this is what we bring into every relationship that we're ever in. What this means is that I am the biggest problem with any relationship I am ever in. Why are relationships messy? Because we're in them. Even from Genesis 3, what is so beautiful about the Bible is that it's incredibly honest about our relationships, about how hard and messy they really are. But our text today doesn't just give us all of this bad news of this disease and the symptoms of it. Our text gives us a hint at the cure for our relational messiness to come. Look with me at verse 15. God is speaking to the serpent here and he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Other translations have, he shall crush your head. So God is talking to Satan and says, one day there will come a descendant of this woman, and you will bruise his heel, you will hurt him, but yet he will crush your head. He will utterly destroy you. As we read the Bible, we discover that this promised one is Jesus Christ himself. And then one night, the night before he is crucified, we find him in a garden too. And he's got two options again. He doesn't want to be crucified the next day. Father, is there any other way? 
He can rebel. He can make the decision for himself. Or he can trust God and submit. Where Adam and Eve disobeyed God, Jesus submits and then is bruised for each and every one of us on the cross. Adam and Eve hide their shame under their fig leaves. And Jesus is mocked, beaten, stripped naked, and hung on a cross for everyone to see. Adam and Eve bring death with their disobedience, but Jesus brings life with his obedience. On the cross, Jesus is bruised, but on that cross, Jesus crushes sin and Satan and death and self-centeredness forever. On the cross, our sins, our rebellion, our self-centeredness are paid for by the holy and perfect Son of God. And then we're given His perfection, His righteousness. We said earlier that sin is taking the place of God. Salvation in the gospel is God coming down and taking our place on the cross that we deserve. What this does when we believe this, when we believe this gospel, is it begins to crush this disease of self-centeredness in our hearts. And it starts to work backwards on these symptoms. I mean, when we understand that we are righteous in Christ, shame begins to go away because we know who we are. We are dearly beloved children of God. I mean, Jesus deals with our insecurity. In Christ, we are eternally secure. We are eternally righteous. And nothing we can do can ever take that away. Neither can anyone else. Not even our own sin can take that away. So it doesn't matter if our girlfriend doesn't text us back in three seconds. We know that we're secure in Christ. In our relationships, we can be let down. We could get dumped. We could be cheated on, and it's going to hurt. But we will not be destroyed because we are secure in Christ. We love to rebel, and yet Jesus obeyed and took our rebellion to the cross. And as this works its way deep into our bones, we don't want to rebel as much. We love God, and we want to obey Him because of what He's done for us. And so we find ourselves rebelling a little less and a little less. We take delight in obeying our God. Where we try to hide from God, Christ went to the cross to bring us out of hiding. Now we don't have to hide from our friends. We can let people know who we really are. Because no matter what, Jesus loves us. He loves that we're quirky and weird. He loves us no matter what we look like. While we blame others for our problems and failures... Jesus is being crucified, and he says to the Father, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And while we blame others, it's as if Jesus is saying, put all of their blame, all of their guilt on me, all of their sin on me, and I'm going to take it to the cross. Until we understand all of this, 
our relationships are destined to be nothing but messy and frustrating. Again, Larry Crabb, he's a Christian counselor. He says, without the resources available in Jesus, the best marriages, the best relationships cannot rise higher than well-socialized self-centeredness. Without Jesus' life and his death and his resurrection, excuse me, and the power that comes from it within us, our most sincere commitment to love another is always, always corrupted by an ultimate concern with our own well-being. Only the power of God provided in the gospel of Jesus and energized by God's Holy Spirit in us can release us from this stranglehold of stubborn self-interest. This side of heaven, we're never going to be free from our self-centeredness. But until we embrace this cure for our self-centeredness, until we embrace Jesus Christ and his death and resurrection, our lives are going to be characterized by nothing more than well-socialized self-centeredness. The invitation this morning for all of us, whether a new believer or a believer for decades, is to embrace the only cure for our self-centeredness, for all of our relational messiness, to embrace Jesus Christ as our Lord and our Savior. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you this morning admitting how self-centered we are, how much we care only about ourselves. We have rebelled against you in more ways than we can count. And yet, there is Jesus. God himself, perfect, came down lived and died for us. We don't deserve that. We don't deserve Jesus. Thank you so much for Jesus, for the cross, for his resurrection, for the spirit living inside of us. Father, I pray that you would drive these truths of your gospel that we see even in Genesis 3 deep down into us, down into our hearts, into our bones. That you would begin to destroy this self-centeredness in each of us. And that we would look to you and to others. Thank you for Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.